Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security. I'm here, as always, with Zhao, my security cohort, and we're going to talk about a really exciting story here in episode 78. I think this is one of the more exciting ones that have come out. We've had a number of them, but this one is really cool. How you doing, Zhao? All good. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And yeah, this one is actually a really interesting one. Um, we're going to be talking a bit about Mirai, not exactly the tool itself and the botnet, but how it came to be, what, what surrounded it, who created it, how it came to be one of the most hated tools out there for, for white hats and one of the most widely used ones for distributed denial of service attacks. And yeah, yeah um, we actually have this opportunity because uh, there is this article on Wired and you should actually take a look at the links that we'll have together with this because the, the, the article on Wired will only be um, free to read for a couple of days from the time that this podcast oh. is being recorded. And after that, it goes paywall. So you'll have to look for an alternative if you don't have a Wired subscription. Um, but it's a really interesting story. Um, fair warning, it's also very long. It turns out to about the 70 page PDF or something like that. So yeah. get a very large cup of coffee to go with this because it gets really interesting and it's really, a, you're in for a long read. It reads like a novel in a way when you read the article because the way they tell the story and the way that it's narrated and they talk about this, I mean, because we know it as the, you know, the software that broke the internet, you know, took down, took down all these services, you know, Netflix, HBO, yeah. among others were down. And, um, quite a few things are down at once, which was not your normal thing. I mean, we hear about a company going down or, or something happening to a certain um, place, but this was like a bunch of things down at the same time. And this was a situation back in 2016. And uh, for those listening live, I don't have the link in the show notes yet. It will be there today, but if you Google Mirai Confessions, you'll find it. It's a yeah. wired article and it'll be probably the first, if not among the first uh, results in Google. So it's yeah. a pretty big story. And again, it will be free to read only for a limited amount of time. So a print to PDF is your friend. That's your tip for yep. today. Um, so yeah, the, the event that you're describing, the, those big names being down, it was Amazon, Spotify, Reddit, PayPal, Slack, eBay, Netflix, all the big names on the internet were down on mm -hmm. October 21st. Down or hardly responded to any new requests. And there's quite a story behind that. Let's let's first set the context for this because mm -hmm. it's incredibly relevant in this story. It's October 21st, 2016. This is three weeks just before the 2016 election between Hillary and Trump. And at this point in time, there had already been reports by intelligence agencies, public reports at that, that the hacks on the Democratic National Committee, Committee had been carried by Russian-backed actors. So everybody was in a state of panic at the time. Everybody was seeing threats everywhere and cybersecurity incidents and all of that were being magnified out of proportion. And then this happened. Um, so at the same time, WikiLeaks was releasing emails stolen from these hacks. So it was basically a really explosive situation. So when these big websites started to go offline, people started to go crazy and coming out with crazy theories about why this was happening, when was this the, the big wave event or 
was this just a prelude for something that was going to happen on November 6th on the election? Um, yep. Yeah. So again, it turns out that this distributed denial of service was being carried out as a result of a tool that had been created by three teenagers in the US. Not a state-sponsored yep. attack, not some foreign entity is targeting the US because of the elections. It was simply a tool written by three very talented hackers at the time. The tool was called Mirai. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and it's like the, the we keep coming back to this uh, this kind of situation where it's either it could be state sponsored or it could be a teenager. It's one or the other. <laughs> oh boy! And we've seen both of them actually. I was going to say it's mostly the the latter, but no, we we've seen most we've seen instances of both of both of those types of attackers. Um, mm -hmm. Lapses, for example, it turned out to be some teenagers as well that were targeting Nvidia and Microsoft and all of that and got the source code or leaked some source code or some videos from GTA, for example. And yeah, we've seen all of that and we've seen state-sponsored hacks. So yeah. Okay, so this was 2016. Everybody was in a state of panic, but the story doesn't exactly start there. It goes back to 2011, five years before this event. And at the time, there were several low-effort hackers for higher services. They could kick somebody off the internet for a certain amount of money. Not that much money. We're talking about 10 bucks, 20 bucks, and you could kick somebody that you didn't like that was playing on your online game and you wanted to win that game. So you kick them out of the server and you would win by default. So you don't like somebody, You some company is doing something that you don't like. Do you want to submit your... <laughs> your application for a job and somebody you don't want anybody else to compete with you, just submit it and then take down the website for the duration. And don't get, this don't was, give anyone any ideas. <laughs> I'm not. Hopefully, hope, this, was hopefully something, this was something that was readily available in 2011. And right. to some extent is still yep. readily available today, but again, not giving any ideas. So the idea was that you could hire someone with some infrastructure behind that person and they would send enough traffic towards the servers of your target and they wouldn't be able to operate on the internet this is a brute force way of hitting a target but is terribly effective at taking them out for the for a specific duration in time mm -hmm. the service itself was called a booter for they would boot some target off the internet for the duration of the attack now Someone's own connection could even then be easily tracked. It didn't have the necessary bandwidth either. So you'd need more systems to launch the attack from. And that could be zombie systems hijacked by malware or through crowdsourcing helpers saying, hey, these guys are acting really poorly. I need someone to help me. And we need to kick those guys out of the internet or something like that. This happened, for example, um, on WikiLeaks when services like Visa and PayPal and MasterCard refused serving donations to WikiLeaks because of everything that was happening on WikiLeaks. So they decided to, they, and by they, I mean, less savory forum free, uh, people decided to attack those services. And this was one of the ways that that was carried out. Um, another way was finding an amplification service. And an amplification service is something that is still valid today and still occurs today. And not that long ago, it was found that DNS bind 
actually the bind package in Linux was vulnerable to this in that you could send a request to a bind server and it would amplify the response, meaning that it would send out more traffic than you had sent into it and you could redirect that traffic to a victim. That was still happening a few months ago. Um, and at the time, some examples of, of services that you could abuse for this type of amplification were, for example, Quake 3 Arena servers. You would send a get info or a get status message, and it would come back with the list of servers, the maps that were being used, the scores, the number of kills, who was winning the, the ladders and all of that, which was much larger, which was a much higher amount of, of data than the one that you had sent in. So if you had the one megabit connection to that server, you could transform it into a 10 megabit um, attack just by using this type of amplification. Um, multiply that by the number of zombies that you could get, and very quickly you could have enough bandwidth to take out the target on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, again, this isn't exactly new. At the time, it wasn't new. People had known about this for this type of attacks for many, many years now. Um, and you had these three, three wannabe hackers. They were not hackers at the time. They were just three teen, very young teenagers. We were talking about 11, 12 years, something like that, that were taking their first steps into computing and were learning protocols and were learning all of that. And they were starting to get interested into, in this type of things. I mean, even when you're starting out, if you have a passing interest in security or if you're fascinated by the stories that you see in movies or by the, the legends of the internet like the Steve Wozniaks and the Steve Jobs of the time that were actively hacking stuff at a very young age and creating new devices, you can get inspired by that. So you try to emulate that. You look up information, you look up what they did, you quickly come along with some less than ideal sources and less than ideal pieces of information and you start, you may be led to abuse those that information and trying to find the right words here to not frame it this in the in the wrong light because it's really easy to come upon this type of things. Mm -hmm. And they initially, the, the three guys that would eventually lead to, to Mirai, um, they would initially be interested in this type of putter service and this type of um, getting people they didn't like off the internet or someone that argued with them on a forum somewhere and make them unable to, to respond to their whatever they were posting. And they started to see how it operated and how they could do it themselves. So initially, they would start looking or they started looking, say, for vulnerable PHP my admin hosters. Everybody knows PHP MyAdmin. It was one of the you have to have tools <laughs> back in the day. It still is. Right. If you're running MySQL, if you're running PHP, the full LAMP stack, then yeah, you're going to be running PHP MyAdmin. Turns out that there were some vulnerabilities. And I'm, again, I'm being very, <laughs> very easy here on PHP MyAdmin. There have been historically some vulnerabilities on the, the package, and that could get exploited. And by exploiting it, you might take over the the hosting uh, service and you could use it to run whatever workload you wanted specifically redirecting traffic somewhere else mm -hmm. another interesting um, target that they found for the bots was that super microservers at the time were running a particular apmi version that's the the motherboard based controller 
that runs mm -hmm. separate from the operating system that you have on it. And it was found to have some vulnerabilities as well. And they managed to track that down and identify servers that had that. This is significant because when you have a super micro board, you're very likely running a server. If you're running a server, you're very likely running it on a fairly good internet connection. That's not your desktop system that somebody is running at home. Um, mm -hmm. You can have home labs, you'll have it on a home lab, but traditionally this will be more, more on the enterprise side and it will be something that's more well connected to the internet. So when they had zombies running connected to the internet through this type of systems, they would have access to a substantial amount of bandwidth that they would then be able to use. Yep. Um, it's important to notice something here that's sometimes missed when we're talking about botnets and infected systems and all of that. An infected system that takes part in, in one of these attacks does not necessarily show any worrying signs for an admin. It continues to operate, maybe slightly slower, but it's just network traffic going out. Whatever service is running on the infected system continues to run. In fact, the people behind the botnet do not want to impact whatever the, the server is doing to prevent it from being turned off or updated or patched or whatever. So they do not want to disrupt whatever is happening on the system. Yep, that's true. And my understanding is that the target was IoT systems and uh, a reboot would fix it. But if you um, didn't change the password, you'd be reinfected in like a minute or something like that. Yeah, but that was the next step. Um, ah. Initially, they started with more, with more easy to find targets at the time. Um, the next step after finding those super microservers um, it's interesting. There was a progression here. They would go on to sell their, their bots to booter service operators. Then they found out that the targets of most booter services would be individual users and people that were running at home. Like I said, people that were playing a game or were running their Minecraft servers or whatever. And those individuals would be in a situation where, okay, I'm targeted by a DOS attack, a DDoS attack. So what do I do? Simple, I turn off my router, I turn it back on again, I get a new IP and I'm no longer targeted by the attack. And they identified this problem on their infrastructure. Their targets would simply switch IPs and continue to be online. So they found that instead of targeting the users directly, they would start targeting the upstream routers. So instead of hitting just one user, they would start to take out whole neighborhoods, whole towns from the internet, <laughs> just flooding the, the routers in between one or two or even three levels above the, the users that they wanted to, to kick. Wow. In their eyes, and, and this is where you get the, the teenager side of things. On their eyes, they weren't doing anything illegal. They were kicking servers off the internet, they were kicking users off the internet, but the computers would just be rebooted, they would come back up again next day off to school, and it was a, just a, another school day for them. So, yeah, no harm done so far on their, in the, from their point of view. But it keeps on going. And it keeps on going. The next step was writing something called QBot. This is where they hit the, the IoT side of things. QBot was a piece of software that could be deployed to home routers that had Telnet open. 
at the time, that meant all of them, 90% of them, the majority of them would have would be running Telnet. Those home routers would also have either a default password or an easily guessable password from the MAC address that they had or something like that. So it was easy to include in Qbot the way to access different routers so that you could infect a vast array of, of devices just with that piece of software. Um, through some shenanigans online, and if you want to read the whole details about this, you should really go look at the article. It's really well written. Qbot escaped their control. So they wrote it, they used it to create some botnets and all of that, but one of the members leaked it to some other hacker and the other hacker basically spread it everywhere. Um, Qbot was one of the initial publicly available botnet software that you could find online. Um, the thing is, when you start hitting so many targets, and by so many targets, they were having botnets built on top of Qbot on the thousands of, uh, of individual bots, and that's quite a lot at the time, um, you start to draw attention. Keep this in mind, we'll come back to this point in a minute. A few years after that, and this is 2015, that's one year before the large DDoS and about four years since they started dabbling in this type of software and in this type of services and activities. Um, two of them launched the company. The company was called ProTraf, which was a traffic protection company for victims of DOS attacks. They were offering DDoS protection services. Now, they realized the potential customers were not interested in the service until they were affected by a DOS attack. Oh. So what did you do? Oh, let me hit you with this very painful hammer and then offer you something to ease the pain. Um, this is called direct, <laughs> and it's obviously not legal. But right. yeah, they came out and they did this. They created a company. The company existed. You can find information about it. And this was actually one of the things that led to them being caught eventually. Um, because they were burning through the funds that they had, they decided to speed up things by hitting their competitor customers by DDoSing them with what they had on the what they had built on top of Qbot and presenting them themselves as a solution. While they did got some customers, and here's some customers, it's important to note it was less than 20 customers and were, were mostly Minecraft server operators for some reason. That was something that was booming at the time. Mm -hmm. Actually never played it, so I don't understand the, the fascination <laughs> with Minecraft, but that's just me. Um, and yeah, they came up with the solution to a problem that that happened to those Minecraft servers and they were there like the, the next second, hey, are you being hit by a DOS attack? We have this great service here that can protect you from that. Ah, oh, imagine the company, that. Yeah, the company eventually failed. This was in early 2016. There was still no Mirai at this point. We're like 10 months off from the large DOS thing and everything starts to ramp up pretty quickly here. One of the reasons why things started to, to ramp up so quickly was because Qbot had been distributed basically to the public. It had been upgraded by other people. It supported more IoT devices. It gained some worm capabilities. And worm capabilities here mean that it would automatically look for other targets on the network that it was deployed to. And it would automatically spread to those new devices. And 
meaning it can move laterally on its own, but it was still kind of cumbersome to use. There wasn't an effective control mechanism to control the QBot networks, and it was all mostly manual stuff. So they designed the control mechanism. And the control mechanism would have the infected bots looking for new victims those systems could scan, then reporting them to a loader system that would infect the newly discovered systems automatically, and then connect them to a new control, command and control server that would manage the whole thing. To give you some idea of how successful and powerful this was, they checked in one day, and again, teenagers, they woke up in the morning, oh, let me see what happened during the night. And overnight, they got 160,000 new bots. That's staggering. Wow. They had discovered 160,000 new IoT devices overnight and infected them and were now able to launch the DDoS attacks from those devices. So they started to add any connected device that had known flaws. Bridges, toasters, light bulbs, these devices would never be unplugged. They would never be patched. So they were essentially eternal on their Mirai botnet. This was when they had already been developing Mirai. This was already Mirai stuff. Um, they identified stuff like industrial cement mixers and municipal water control systems. Turns out that these are also connected to the internet for some reason. And they themselves decided it would, it would be better not to infect them because they could be labeled as cyber terrorists. So that was oh. their concern. We have 160. That was their concern, yeah. Yeah, okay. we have 160 new systems overnight and we're concerned about just a handful of them because those are the ones that can paint us in a bad light. Yeah. <laughs> So by this point, the botnet had over 600,000 bots and was being run, <laughs> and this is another interesting fact here, it was being run from a seed box hosted in France. If you're not familiar, a seed box is a system that you rent out on a server somewhere and you serve torrents from, basically. That's what the seed box is. There are multiple less than legal services online that provided this facility. They used it to run their command and control. Yeah. There were some anime episodes on that uh, same seed box. This will become interesting um, in a few moments in the story because the, eventually the police, the French police, will raid the, the server and the person that was hosting that seed box, and they would think that they had any connection to, to Mirai at the time, and they made the connection through the anime and all of that, but it turns out that it was just a patsy, somebody that they had been able to get the credentials to the seed box from and had no connection to this at all. Again, it was also at this point that they actually named this Mirai. And Mirai means future in Japanese. This was taken from an anime that one of the hackers liked. And yeah, if you see Mirai written somewhere, it means future in Japanese. I, that's a very good movie, by the way. I love that one. <laughs> so remember when I said that they started to draw attention? Well, cybersecurity professionals were deploying honeypots. They're pretending to be IoT devices and capturing multiple QBot variations. One the, the stuff that they captured, they spotted a new variant that was different from QBot. It was Mirai. In this honeypot, it was possible for the, the cybersecurity professionals to watch in real time the commands that the bots were receiving and the targets that were being chosen. However, 
And this is another feature that they built into Mirai that was really, it's going to say it's smart, not so smart, but again, it was smart enough to detect when it was running a Hatmi pot and not a real hardware device. So it would terminate immediately. They would basically capture the, the least amount of traffic possible and then Mirai would simply expire. So what do the cybersecurity professionals do? Easy, they pick up a, a DVR device and plug it into the network and just waited for it to be infected. And surprise, surprise, it was infected. <laughs> Another interesting twist on this. Qbot wow. had code in it that would actively look for other infections on the same device that it was starting to target and eliminate them. So at one point, Mirai and Qbot variants were fighting over the same devices that they were trying to infect. This is amazing. They were infecting and reinfecting and cleaning the previous infection and deploying again, and this was happening constantly on some devices. And they were actively searching and destroying the other infections. And again, the the mind process that goes into into creating this type of software. And sometime and at some point in the process, you go and hey, but this might have been infected previously. So let me clean the device and then infect it again myself. It's fascinating. This it, it's clever and oppositional. <laughs> Remember a few. Years ago, we talked about this on a previous podcast episode. There was this story about this someone that was mysteriously logging into routers that were exposed to the internet and patching some vulnerability and then just leaving the system. This shines a new yeah. light on that, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a funny story in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so at this point, yeah, vigilante the, type thing. Yeah. <laughs> It makes you think if it was actually a vigilante or if it's just deploying some other new stuff on that on those devices and they wanted no competition. Um, so the groups that were now behind modified variants of Qbot and the three hackers behind Mirai started to spun up takedown requests for the command and control servers of the opposite groups. You know, like the takedown requests and you have a copyrighted offense on YouTube or on some other stuff, they were right. doing this between themselves. At one point, one, one group redirected the botnet traffic towards the hoster of the other's command and control. And the hosting company that, had, that was running that server did something called the BGP hijack to avoid the DDoS. This is a tangent, but a BGP hijack is... BGP is border gateway protocol. It's essentially a network protocol that is used at the ISP level to tell other ISPs which address space you serve. It's ridiculously easy to spoof and falsify. A few years ago, for example, all the traffic from one African country, I believe it was Liberia, was being routed through China because an, an ISP in China started to advertise the wrong address space. And the traffic that was headed to that country was being rerouted through China before getting back where it should. Um, responding to a DDoS attack by changing your BGP advertisement space is something that's not traditionally done. This in itself is highly interesting, but again, it's tangential to this story. So <laughs> Mirai started doing something to keep Qbot out. It closed off telnet access on the infected devices. Like we were saying, that mysterious vigilante that was closing the vulnerabilities, Mirai now started closing off uh, telnet. 
Um, again, the amount of hoops and jumps that these guys go through to, to create this is amazing. Wow. One of the it's first like, did they follow a specific development life cycle process too while they were developing all this? They probably did because it sounds like they thought of everything. So Mirai had an established botnet and it had managed to fence off the, the opposite groups and they had managed to establish themselves as a service. One of the first victims of Mirai was Krebs from Krebs on Security. It was his website that was the first to be taken down. He had the DOS protection from a firm called Prolexic. Prolexic is a firm owned by Akamai, the internet giant. The Microsoft mm -hmm. used them. I don't know if they still do use them to distribute their patches and all of serve all of their content and all of that. So it was a very big firm. And one day Prolexic phoned Krebs and told them that they were protecting his website from a 623 gigabit per second attack in 2016 which they were absorbing. But as the attack continued for about two days, Prolexic just dropped Krebs as a customer. His website obviously went down after that. Um, and if you think that 623 gigabit per second is a, a large enough attack, and we're still in 2016, remember that? Mm -hmm. It actually wasn't. At the same time, Mirai was also hitting a French ISP called OVH, and they were hitting them with one terabit per second attack. So they were simultaneously oh, wow. throwing out a tremendous amount of bandwidth just to take down specific targets. They essentially were doing this to demonstrate Mirai, and they were trying to get customers to, to rent Mirai and pay them a fee so that they could monetize this. It turns out that the attack on Krebs was done by a hacker from Brazil renting uh, Mirai. And the hackers were actually scared of the backlash that this had caused. Uh, Krebs was pretty, is still pretty known in the cybersecurity space. It ha he has ties to law enforcement and all of that. And hitting him painted a very large target on whoever was creating Mirai. Yeah, um, it would, yep. Yeah, so large of a target and so much of a fuss that this created that the FBI got involved in the story. I mean, the FBI realized that even Akamai can't put up with this type of attack, then they need to look deeply into this and they need to come and identify whoever is responsible for it. So I'm not... There are several details that I'm going to skim over here because, again, this is a very long story and we're, mm -hmm. I don't want to run out of time before hitting the, the, the conclusion of this. But there is one group inside of the FBI that deals with the DOS attacks. Um, it's called Big Pipes. Go figure. Um, mm -hmm. And um, this spot, this was essentially up their alley, and they were the ones that were looking into this. And uh, the investigators behind it were based on Alaska. Because the, the, of the way the, the FBI operates, they only had jurisdiction if one of, in fact, the device that targeted Krebs was located in Alaska. Because the network was so large, it, they obviously managed to track down one device that was infected from Alaska, so they got jurisdiction and they started the investigation from there. Um, so they track they track down that company that then the, the 
was hosting the command and control. They managed to track down through a device that was infected. They looked at the logs and managed to track it down to that company that did the BGP hijack sync to avoid the DDoS, which hosted a command and control server for Mirai. And they contacted them and they asked for information about the server and if they knew who was behind Mirai and who was behind that account that was running this. And the company told them no. But they told them that you might be able to get more information from ProTraf. Remember, the company that the hackers had created. Mm-hmm. And the reason that this company pointed to ProTraf was because during one of the demonstrations of Mirai, one of the three hackers decided to target one of the Minecraft servers that were initially their customers. And they tried to DDoS them and extort them for some money. And to make that more credible, they sent the email with the extortion request to the Minecraft operator, the, the server owner, and they CC'd their own ProTraf email address to make it seem like, oh, we don't know the Minecraft operator, so we're going to target him and the company offering them protection. And that made his name appear here. And the FBI tracked it down. Um, Again, that company that had failed and had been created to try to extort money from people was now coming back and being their Achilles heel on this whole story. Again, you cannot make this up. I'm starting to wonder why this isn't a Netflix series. It'd be interesting, you know, Netflix was taken down by this and then would then host a show by this. I, I think, I'm sure somebody out there has this idea. This would be a pretty exciting series. It's just the stories that we we don't like these things to happen to people, but when they happen to happen, then, um, I mean, this is the literally the stuff movies are made of, the, you know, different plot points. It's got it all. I mean, it's got um, oppositional teenagers, um, evil corporations or an evil company, um, a virus that runs amok. That's pretty crazy. And now you have three hackers that are pretty scared because the FBI is looking very closely at one of them. And they chat up amongst themselves and one just wants to take down Mirai, the other wants to shut it all down but release the, co- the source code so that it misdirects whoever is investigating, and another one takes no position. Um, it turns out that the Mirai source code gets leaked anyway. One of them publishes it online. It's still available online today. You can still find Mirai source code out there in the internet. Um, and obviously, <laughs> If Qbot being released produced many variants of Qbot, Mirai being released created multiple versions of Mirai. And now we're back to October 21st. Again, very close to the elections, everybody being scared and seeing attacks everywhere. And the major services on the internet are taken down. And this is traced to a DNS resolution failure at DIN, dynamic DNS, DIN DNS. And by looking at logs from captured infected devices that are running Mirai, they see that the attack was initiated from the network. Um, Here is where the old motto of it's DNS comes into play. DIN DNS was an authoritative DNS service. It still is, I believe. This means that other providers check in with DIN to make sure that the name resolutions are still valid. A name resolution has a specific time to live. 
So after a few, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, you need to check back in with the server to see if it's still valid to get the, the resolution again. Mm-hmm. So when Mirai targeted the DIN servers, they became unable to respond to legitimate requests from Google, from the big networks, the big ISPs. But authoritative servers never fail. They never fail to give a response. So when the response was not being sent back, the servers asking the the request would simply retry and retry and retry. And eventually, DNS was the DOSing itself. So Oh, my gosh. It wasn't just Mirai anymore. That day, the 21st of October, DNS itself was killing DNS. At the end of the day, when people finally managed to get things under control, when the attack was more or less starting to trickle out, the damage was really bad. The PlayStation Network, which it was eventually found to be the the initial target of this, and again, all of these stories that we're touching here, the PlayStation Network hack, the the hack of Mirai itself, uh, QBot, all of these were on its on them by themselves separate stories that have come out over the years related to cybersecurity. And the PlayStation Network, this was the big attack that it had. It was in 2016. And yeah, it was because of Mirai. They estimated that they lost because they were offline for a day or two or something like that because of this $2.7 million in losses. DIN, which coincidentally was about to be sold to Oracle on that very day for $600 million, lost 14,000 customers that day. 14,000 websites that were being resolved at DIN were no longer there the day after. Um, oh, wow. They reported that was 8% of the contracted web domains. That's millions in future revenue. The big names were still counting the losses, but when you consider that Amazon, eBay, PayPal make tons of money each day, taking them offline for half a day, that's a lot of money that they lose. Okay. Oh, yeah. So you can imagine that there was only one way that this could go, right? The FBI raid came two months after that. It raided one of the hackers. <laughs> and this is where it gets funny. It, the FBI raid brought along some um, special intelligence officers from the French police because they had raided that seed box in France and they were suspecting someone from France to also be responsible for this. It turns out to just have been a patsy. Um, but yeah, the, the French were also involved in the in the raid. Um, so yeah, the FBI raid comes in, they just seize equipment, they don't arrest anybody, but they let the the hackers know that, yeah, we know you, what you did, we're going to take the equipment, and yeah, this is not going to go well for you. Mm-hmm. But the hackers weren't arrested. So they remained free. In 2017, they had started a new botnet with no connection to Mirai, and they were instead selling it for click fraud. So they built a new botnet. <laughs> Obviously, they, I mean, at this point, they had already talked to the FBI. The FBI had been in their houses, that had seized the equipment. They had to know they were being spied upon or looked upon, or, and they still get, went back and did it. 
So that makes again, no sense at all. Wow, no, no sense at all. By this point, I believe they are nineteen now, so they're no longer teenagers. They are adults at this point. They might not be able to drink in some U.S. states, but they're adults. Um, and a few months after that, and I really don't understand the the time delay here. A few months after that, the the FBI comes back again. And it goes to one of them, the the initial one, the the guy that first wrote the Qbot and wrote most of the Mirai code. And they offer him a plea deal. Um, you work for us, you tell us what the other two are planning and all of that, and you don't immediately go to jail. And he takes that plea. And he makes that deal with the FBI and starts to collaborate with them. Eventually, the FBI offers the same thing to the second hacker, which also takes it. And the FBI then identifies the third one. The, the third one by this point had not yet been linked because he was he had no connection to, to that company that they had created. But they get to him at this point. So the FBI basically has all three of them and they offer him, the, the FBI offers all three of them the, this deal. You're going to be sentenced to five years community service that you will be serving under us, working for the FBI, creating protections against this and identifying new threats of the DOS, and you don't go to jail. Yeah. And they did, and they accepted that. And that's why the story only comes out today, because that's when the, the agreement that they made with the FBI expired and the story was able to be published. And Oh, that explains it. Okay. Yeah. And... It's amazing that people responsible for this tool that caused such havoc and such problems and so many losses and I mean, all the hassles that come with it managed to get away with just a slap on the wrist and actual jobs. And Wow. Yeah, that has to be very infuriating for any yeah. company or anyone that was caught in the crossfire of this and lost all this money just to find out the people that perpetrated this, you know, just had community service and a job. <laughs> essentially <laughs> but that's how how the story turned out um again there are countless details that i skimmed over you really should go and take a read at this again print to pdf will save you some money um yep. it's a great story it's a great write-up it's very well written it's more or less the the script for a new series all baked into and yeah netflix should really look into this We'll yep. take our cut afterwards. Um, yeah, if they make a movie about the whole GameStop uh, stock thing, then this is probably even better of a story. I mean, they'll probably be after this at a certain point. But, you know, these types of things just never cease to surprise. When you find, I mean, it's one thing when you hear about something happening and how big of a problem it is and the damage that it causes. And then later you find out the individual details of how this came about. We don't really, I don't feel it's not that often we get this much detail. I mean, sometimes, yes, but I mean, does this, like you're saying, something like 70 pages or something, it, it's not a quick read, but it is a good read. You, It is fun, um, unfortunate fun, but fun all the same. And it's um, definitely something I, I also recommend everyone checks out while they still can. On a final note, if you work on cybersecurity and you use a tool called Watchtower, which is a honeypot-like it's a modified QMU version where you can deploy IoT device firmwares and look for traces and changes and all of that. It's basically a honeypot that you create for IoT. It was uh -huh. created by the guys behind Mirai. It was part of their job 
at the FBI. They wrote this tool. This tool is available out there. It's very well done. Um, so if you want to look at some of the job that they did, of the work that they did, look up Watchtower. It's really nice. Um, mm -hmm. Again, this is a great story. Um, sorry if I haven't made it justice. It's really not very easy to make it to make justice to such a long story in such a short amount of time. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you very much for joining. As always, it was a pleasure. It was a great story, and I hope you liked it very much. And until the next one. Yep, we'll see you again very, very soon. And we'll have more security news and shenanigans just waiting for you. Thank you very much, everybody. Until the next one. Appreciate it.